America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. singing Twilight Zone. Well, uh, the Twilight Zone is, without a doubt, one of the most impactful five seasons of television in history. And if you compare that show to so many other shows that were on at the same time, that tried to do the same thing that it did, so many shows that came after it for the ensuing 70 or so years that tried to do the same thing, meaning an anthology series that uh, focused on a different story each week where maybe there was a uh, something strange going on, something out of the ordinary, always with a bizarre twist at the end. Many of them are very good. I'm a fan of many of them. None of them are as good as The Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone. Now, sometimes you see films or television shows And I don't know that audiences in the current era can necessarily appreciate how revolutionary those shows were at the time because they've influenced everything that came after it. The Sopranos is a good example. So many of the dramas that have been made over the last 20 years emulate The Sopranos. So now if someone who's used to watching television today watches The Sopranos, you almost kind of react, oh, well, okay, well, it's interesting, but I don't know. I've seen a lot of shows do that before. The same cannot be said of The Twilight Zone. The incredible writing on that show, the incredible acting on that show with people like um, Buster Keaton, William Shatner, Dennis Hopper, and uh, Robert Redford, countless others. It really is timeless. And I think you could hold an episode of The Twilight Zone from 1960 up to anything on television today, 
And I think the Twilight Zone comes out ahead. And I know a lot of people, especially on Halloween, enjoy the tradition of watching an old black and white TV series that might be a little spooky, a little interesting, might, might make interesting points about contemporary society in a fun way. If the Twilight Zone is on your list today, one of the things I think you're going to be struck by is how integral Rod Serling, not only his writing, but his opening and closing narrations are into kind of setting the stage for that particular story. What's also interesting is how prophetic so many of his monologues in those episodes from 60 years ago have turned out to be. Like this ep- this uh, monologue from The Obsolete Man. You walk into this room at your own risk because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. The Chancellor, the late Chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete. But so is the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind. Unfortunately, though, since Rod Serling has now been gone for about 50 years, we don't have the opportunity to see him create any new work. And a lot of us would love to know more about him. Someone that has contributed a great deal to the study of Sterlingology has been Joel Engel, a veteran journalist and author of many books, including Last Stop, the biography of Rod Serling. Joel, thanks for coming on the radio with me. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. That uh, absolute man uh, narration gave me the chills. Uh, same here, same here. Even though I knew exactly what was going to happen and what he what he says, you listen to what he's saying and you compare it to what's going on today, and there are just so many uh, parallels. Now, Joel, you have uh, more than one book on Rod Serling, right? You've got a couple. No, no, I I have one. The uh, the, the title of of the edition that's out now is called Last Stop the Twilight Zone, which is a conscious echo of his next stop, the Twilight Zone. I originally published his biography in 1989, and I wanted to call it that, but I made the mistake of uh, going down to CBS and meeting with a lawyer and asking him whether Twilight Zone at that time was considered in the public domain, the, the words. And he said, yeah. So <laughs> I changed the title to uh, Rod Serling, The Dreams and Nightmares of Life gotcha. in the Twilight Zone. Gotcha. So if it's, people... it's the same book with uh, uh, minor edits. Gotcha. So if they see uh, two books by you about Rod Serling on Amazon or something, it's essentially it's materially the same book. It is exactly the same book with a couple words different. Got it. Hey, so what sparked your interest in uh, writing about Rod Serling? I know you've written about a lot of different subjects before, a lot of interesting stuff. Why Rod Serling? 
Well, it was uh, I, it was 1987, and I was home from work, um, sick. And in those days, in pretty much every big city and small city, the Twilight Zone was a strip show. You could at midnight and noon, you could watch back to back two episodes. So I saw an episode that I had seen 25 times before. It might even, I don't remember what it was. It might even have been Obsolete Man. And I thought, ah, Rod Sterling, he must be really, uh, he must be, must have been a really interesting man. I'm going to, so as soon as I was well, I went to a bookstore. Uh, long story short, I couldn't find a book because one didn't exist. Uh, then I went to, I live in Los Angeles. I went to UCLA, the special collections department. And it turned out that he had donated, or his family had donated, three or four or five boxes of memos and things like that. And I sat there and I read them for four hours one day. And I thought, oh, this is, this guy is fascinating. This would make a great biography someday for someone. And I went, wait a second. This would make a great biography for you. So I spent the next two years uh, researching and writing it. Well, it's interesting, you know, the fact that you couldn't find any other biographies. I thought to myself when I first conceived of doing this segment, I said, let me find the best Rod Serling biographers that I can. And maybe we can even do a panel of all the Rod Serling biographers. You were the only real biography of Rod Serling that I could find. So uh, thank goodness you added to the uh, to the uh, what, the collective knowledge of Rod Serling. Uh, let us uh, start with the basics. What can you tell us about Rod's early life, where he grew up, what kind of family he came from? What was young Rod Serling long before the Twilight Zone like? Uh, he grew up um, upstate from you in Binghamton. Uh, he had on the surface what was a pretty idyllic childhood. Um, he was uh, a, a gifted kid in a lot of ways. Um, his father owned, his father was a, a frustrated engineer, but who owned a meat market. Uh, his six years older brother was uh, already a pretty good writer and became professionally a very good writer, Robert Serling. He was probably most famous for uh, The President's Plane is Missing. Mm. Um, anyway, but he was he was a Jewish kid in a town that didn't have that many Jews and had a, a subtext or a, a, an undercurrent of anti-Semitism in it. For instance, he could there were clubs he couldn't join. There was a fraternity he couldn't get into, and all of that. Um, and so that stayed with him, and it didn't really express itself. He he always had a need to uh, try to prove himself. Um, and people loved. People really liked him. He was he was ingratiating, and he was charming, and he was smart, and he was verbal. Um, but until he got into World War II, he was a, a paratrooper and, and had an astounding experience in um, um, uh, uh, in the Philippines. Uh, there was a very long period when his his platoon couldn't get resupplied, so they were. They they had to drink rainwater out of their ponchos and they the the little planes, the uh, the alfives that were supposed to drop down uh, crates of of food and supplies to them couldn't they, they weren't able to do it and finally after weeks they were able to do it and a crate that was bringing them sustenance one of them landed on the head of his best friend Mel Levy killed him wow and, and that. Well, I, 
I, I, when that happened, and and then then Rod was in some some severe action after that. But that moment of irony, irony being the coin of the realm in the Twilight Zone, I think that's when that was born. And all of those things in Rod's life, all of them, the the stuff that he had. Um, uh, tried to ignore the, the stuff of not, but not belonging and all of that and being shorter than everybody else. All of that, I think, coalesced after that uh, and after the war. And I think that's when, in, in earnest, the Twilight Zone was born. He tried to sell it as a radio uh, anthology series to a guy named Walter Schwimmer, who was a radio syndicator. And I talked to this guy Schwimmer and he said, I have two claims to fame in my life. One is, I got this proposal from this young aspiring writer named Rod Serling for something called The Twilight Zone. I told him, nah, it'll never work. <laughs> and the other is, I, got, I kept getting bothered by this uh, young comedian who wanted me to give him a show. And I thought, nah, this guy's got nothing. And his name was Danny Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> the the mush of the entertainment world. Hey, uh, so it's no wonder, given his uh, service in the military and the very jarring experiences that you described, that a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes deal extensively with uh, themes like uh, the w- wars and uh, and the military and all sorts of, all sorts of that stuff. Um, we're talking with Joel Angle. You could check out out his book, Last Stop, the biography of Rod Serling. It's available on Amazon and uh, most places that you can get your books. Uh, what what was his career before the Twilight Zone after leaving the military? Did he do anything in between his military service and being uh, the writer of the Twilight Zone? He, uh, after the, the service he got out, he went to Antioch in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio, and he got a degree, and he majored in radio and broadcasting and phys ed. And then he got a job uh, in Cincinnati at radio station WLW, writing all of the kind of corn stuff that radio used to just eat up in those days. He used to tell people in the during the war, do you know how many words uh, are uttered every day on the radio, millions of them. I'm going to write some of those words. So he aspired to be uh, in, in radio. But at the same time, around 1950, TV was happening in earnest. And he would sit down, at, he would come home from his job writing all this corn pone stuff. Um, and he would come home to his young wife, Carol, and who was uh, got pregnant very early, like by 1951, she was pregnant. And, and he would crank out all of these scripts and none of them were working. Finally, he hits, he sells one and he sells another, then he sells another. And then in 1955, not thinking that he's really going to have a great career, he wrote something for craft theater, craft TV theater called Patterns, which was such a gigantic success that to this day, well, they don't do live TV anymore, but it was the only live TV that they ever did again live. They a, a month later they did it. They did it again. The New York Times reviewer said it was the high water mark in television so far. He won an Emmy for it. He was offered the Sky by publishers, by uh, by everybody, by TV, by Holly, by Hollywood itself. And then the following year, he wrote. Uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight, which is the first original 90-minute mm. uh, script. 
ever produced for TV. And he won an Emmy for, on the new TV series uh, called Playhouse 90. And he won an Emmy for that. And he won an Emmy the following year for another Playhouse 90, which was an adaptation of Ernest Lehman's The Comedians. Um, so he had amazing success. He was by far the most famous writer in television before he got to the Twilight. Wow. Show. Okay. So th- that was patterns. That was sort of the game changer for him. It was it, his life. That was January 12th, 1955. And to the end of his days, 20 years and six months later, his life was never the same after that. Wow. Now, um, so tell me, you mentioned that he tried to pitch the Twilight Zone as a radio anthology series. Obviously, he had a lot of juice uh, given his stature, winning those Emmys, doing Requiem for a Heavyweight, doing Patterns. Tell me how the Twilight Zone became a television show and... How did he become the one showrunner, the one major writer of a television series, to get also featured as the host of that television series? Okay, so he he had this idea for something he called the time element. He had ever since the war, he'd had this recurring uh, dream and nightmare that he could go back in time and and stop things from happening. Now, remember, he fought in in the South Pacific, and one of the things that he thought about would make a good story was making it so that um, Pearl, the 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 brass at Pearl Harbor was worn. So he came up with the 60-minute script and uh, that a guy, a producer named Burt Granite bought and put on as uh, Desilu Playhouse. And it was, such an, it was such a gigantic big hit. Again, the, it got more cards and letters than anything CBS had ever done to that point. And these, this was a show that was taking Lucy and Desi's place uh, uh, one week a month. Um, so he thought that he had some juice with this, but this, the um, the network would not commit to 60 minutes for something like that, for something speculative, for something that you couldn't tie up in a bow. That was the term that they used. They because they they didn't think the audience was yet sophisticated enough to watch something that didn't have a period and exclamation point at the end. So he came up with the, and, and now CBS loved it. He, he was exclusive to CBS. They were paying him a lot of money because he was the writer in television at that time. So he came up with another idea, and that was uh, a 30-minute, which he really didn't want to do, but he, it was a 30-minute script called The Happy Place, and it was basically about euthanasia. You get to age 60, and they send you in an elevator to the happy place, ergo you're dead. And so the the um, the network would not commit to that because they thought we can't sell a series. In those days, you went if you had a series, you shot a pilot, and then the network took it to uh, advertisers like Liggett Myers and and uh, uh, Kimberly Clark, and those were the the advertisers who signed on. Now remember, in in for us. Uh, 30-minute show then, it was 25 minutes of show and five minutes of commercial, and those five minutes were taken up by two different uh, sponsors. So uh, they couldn't, they they wouldn't commit to that, but they told him, write us another pilot. So he did. He wrote another pilot called Where Is Everybody about a... um, a man who everywhere he goes, he sees signs of someone just having been there. 
and uh, he never finds anybody. It turns out, very timely, he was an astronaut going through isolation mm. training. Um, so that became the Twilight Zone pilot, and that's what sold the series. Um, and so the the series was sold on the condition. Now, in those days, they were buying 39 episodes, 39 episodes, on the condition that he would write 80% of them. <laughs> so that's how he became. So along the way, he found Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont and, and a couple of other writers who would be able to contribute, but he really only at the beginning especially, uh, trusted himself to be able to come up with scripts that were good enough. And he worked his keister off doing that. What was the story with season four of The Twilight Zone? Obviously, it's very different than the other seasons. It's uh, an hour long. It looks like it's shot differently. What's the story with that season? Well, the, uh, the, uh, a season or two before, they did six episodes in, in videotape, and they look visu- visually, they look different, but that was because um, they were trying to save a bit of money. The, the, the budgets weren't anywhere. I, they're, not, they're not even an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude near what the budgets are for uh, film series today. But in the, in the fourth season, they decided to expand it to an hour. Um, so the funny thing about that is Rod used to get asked, how do you write so often? He said, well, I don't have to come up with a a third act. The third act is, and that's the way it is in the twilight zone. (laughs) So most of the, uh, fourth seasons, uh, really look like they're just, they're dragged out except for one, one extraordinary thing. And I'll sit, let me, let me just preface this by saying the more you know about Rod Serling, the more you appreciate each of the Twilight Zone because very much, I would say 98.8% of what's of everything that Rod ever wrote was in some way autobiographical, whether psychological or actually biographical. In the fourth season, he felt like he was being shunted aside by the, not appreciated by the network. So the one that stands out and has become, since I started learning about him, my favorite episode. It's called "On Thursday We Leave for Home." It's about this uh, about, about a a bunch of people. James Whitmore is the captain. They I remember this. I love it. Yeah, it's a wonderful episode, and they they left Earth many, many, many years before um, because they couldn't take the, the 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 constant on the verge of war and all of that and racism and all of the things that, that Rod hated, and so they are there, and uh, one day after they've been there for a generation. They've, they, people have they've gotten married, they've had children, the children have had children. And Whitmore is still the glue that keeps them all together. And one day, another spaceship comes with the captain says, we're taking you all back to Earth. It's utopia now. Everything is fine. And everybody gets excited to go back to Earth. And now he knows he's not important to them anymore. He's not the big cheese. And everybody gets on the ship to leave but him. He stays behind by himself. And that was very much psychologically what was going on in in rod's head and heart 
and belly at the time. Joe, my only regret in having you on today is that uh, I didn't try to book you for a full hour. Uh, Maybe we can uh, do a part two in a week or two and continue the conversation because there's a lot of other things that I'd love to ask you about, uh, Rod Serling, and you've led a pretty interesting life yourself and written about uh, a lot of other interesting things I'd love to get get into with you. Can we uh, chat again in a week or two? Anytime, Frank. Thank you, Joel. Joel Angle, you want to comment on any portion of our conversation? You can do so. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.